0: Why are there so many details in the Old Testament measurement of items, descriptions of items, materials used arrangements? And so I want to try to answer that question today very briefly with the first three slides and then in more detail, because as I got into it, I thought this could be an entire hour. This is an experiment. At the end, you can vote up or down whether I ever want to give this thing again. But I've had a little bit of fun getting into this, and this will take us into some other books that you maybe have not heard of. If you're interested in art, if you're interested in science or medicine, you might find this kind of interesting. So why so much detail in the Old Testament? I think the answer is, first of all, that Israel was a chosen nation. And we even see that when God calls out Abram, later named Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so he was setting Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the Jews separate from the rest of the culture. Now, he came from the Ur of Chaldees, but you can recognize as we get into the next verse in Exodus that one of the things God wanted to do is make sure that they were different from the other nations. And so here, this claim, I will, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar Treasure unto me from all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And then another statement that we see in Deuteronomy. You are the sons of the Lord your God, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And God has what? Chosen you to be the people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So there was a tendency, and there always is a tendency, for us to look at our neighbors and to sort of borrow from their ideas. Um, Lately, I was just telling Parker the number of surveys I'm doing on our new survey that Pro Ministries has done, and we have identified the fact that the most common religion in America, if you want to have a big word, is syncretism. You know, it's a little bit here and a little bit there. You know, I heard something in Oprah Winfrey, so I kind of believe that. And I hear something maybe in church, and I hear believe that. And I see something on NBC News, and I believe that. And I see something else on Fox News, and read something on the Internet. And people don't have a consistent worldview. And that's because we tend to borrow. And I think what God was saying is, I'm going to have to make this very specific, because if not, certainly you, Moses, being trained in Egypt... Are going to tend to bring Egyptian ideas into this new nation. As a matter of fact, when it came time to actually engage in worship while Moses was on the ten, uh, getting the ten commandments on Mount Sinai, what happened? What did they build? A golden calf that looked like what? The Egyptian religion. Then when we even see after God has revealed all this, we see that by the time we get to the book of Judges, they're already borrowing from the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Etruscans, maybe even and from a variety of other groups that are all coming in there, the Phoenicians. And so there is, I think, a real desire on the part of God to say, I want to have you separate from those nations in terms of worship. But then, more importantly, as we're going to see in just a minute, I want you also separate from these other nations because they do not understand science and medicine. But I'm going to divinely reveal to you how you cannot have to face some of the diseases all the other nations will face. And then I'm going to set up a legal structure that's going to be different than any kind of thing that you have ever seen at the time. So I'm going to take you through those three points pretty quickly. And so let's, if we can, try to look at this. The first is I'm going to take a lot of material from this book, uh, which is entitled Art in the Bible. It is written by Francis Schaeffer. We've oftentimes said that Francis Schaeffer was kind of the patron saint for Probe Ministries. Back in the early 1970s, two individuals, John Buell and uh, Jimmy Williams, uh, started reading Francis Schaeffer and some of the books that were coming out. Francis Schaeffer, if you're not familiar, was at Brie in Switzerland and wrote all sorts of books, the God who is there and he is there and he is not silent. Uh, He was brought twice here to Dallas by Probe Ministries to actually speak to the Dallas community and all the rest. And anyway, in his book on art and the Bible, it helps us understand and why such specificity back to the question why so much specificity about the tabernacle and the temple and so we'll look at that for just a few minutes then I want to spend a little bit of time taking some material from a book now, this is a 1971 copyright this is one of the first books I bought as a young Christian none of these diseases And this uh, talks about, again, some of the scientifically reliable material that's in the Old Testament, which didn't come from hundreds of years of scientific investigation and scientific method, but instead were divinely revealed to God so that the Egyptians, who had diseases and had all the plagues, that the Jews or the nation of Israel would not have any of those diseases And I might also borrow one or two things from medical wisdom from the Bible. matter of fact, that that could be a whole sermon, but we won't go into that in too much detail. But let's, if we can, focus a little bit of time and attention on the subject of art. And the first question we have to ask is, why does God have so many artistic statements about the tabernacle and the temple? Because you've had some sort of legalistic Christians that have said, I'm not even sure we're supposed to have art because we're not supposed to have any graven image. Now, that's a complete misinterpretation of what we see in the Ten Commandments because I think it's illustrated very quickly in this book by Francis Schaeffer that art itself is not forbidden. As a matter of fact, we have some of the greatest art done by Christian artists, of course, but the making of a graven image is what is forbidden. We're not uh, forbidden to make an image of anything. We can make images of all sorts of things, but maybe not of God. We're told not to bow down to a graven image in Leviticus. So first of all, let's recognize that when God is giving us uh, various statements about the art that appeared first in the temple and the tabernacle, then in the temple, we he's not contradicting himself. And I thought it was kind of interesting that. Again, if you had any difficulty with this, and I don't think this is a group where that is, but you run in sometimes to legalistic Christians say, no, we can't have these stained glass windows because that'd you know, that be icons and those are wrong or that kind of stuff. We don't have a problem with that here. We have 66 windows out there in the foyer, uh, the 66 books of the Bible. We have a lot of the fruit of the Spirit that Pastor Rand was talking about here today. and We see no problem at all with art. But think about this. Simultaneously, while God was giving the Ten Commandments, Not to bow down before a graven image. He also is giving specific instruction to Moses about the tabernacle. So you might say, "Okay, what are those? I'm only in the interest of time going to pick three just to give you a point. Let's look at this. First of all, we see that, and here is at least one representation of what the tabernacle as the children of Israel were uh, moving around, because this had to be able to pick up and move, um, we see in Exodus 25 this specific claim that exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, show, you shall make it. So the point I'm making is, is when we look at the tabernacle, who was the architect? God was the architect, not Moses. And many times we read, "...and thou shalt make." So these are very specific claims, and let's look at some of those. The first, let's look all the way into the actual part called the Holy of Holies. And here, for example, "...you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seats." Okay, so first of all, question number one, what are the cherubim? Okay, we can probably answer that question. They are what are called the angelic host. Uh, Jack Graham's or Pastor Graham's book on angels goes into that in some detail. So it's available in the bookstore if you'd like to read a little bit more about angels. But first of all, think about this. Had anybody at that time seen a cherubim? Not pretty much evidence. We know that Isaiah does. We see that. Uh, and we know probably it looks pretty like Ezekiel did. But this is a thousand years later. When they say make a chair of cherubim, it's like, I've never seen one. And so why the specificity? Because God had to specifically explain what they look like. Unless maybe he divinely revealed that to one of the craftsmen. And so that is the case. So first of all, they are to make cherubim. Uh, We have a better idea because we know what they now look like. Of course, if you read the book of Isaiah, you get into it in a little more detail. And what's being commanded? That you can actually take something in the angelic realm and make a physical representation of that. Which I think, for those of you that are to say, that gives you a lot of freedom, doesn't it? You know, I'm going to paint a picture, photograph something, uh, do a piece of music. Uh, I can really have, that gives you a lot of creativity because it says not only can I do art of the physical world, I can even do art that represents the angelic world. So that's the Holy of Holies. Let's take another one. Let's take something as simple as the candlesticks out there. And we see in Exodus 25, it's pretty long, but I thought I'd give it to you here. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. It's base, it's stem, it's cups, it's calyxes, and it's flower shall be at one piece with it, and there shall be six branches going out of the sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side, three cups made like almond blossoms, each with a calyx and flower, and one branch, three cups made with almond blossoms, such as with a calyx and flower on the other branch, so that the six branches go out out of the lampstand. Getting back to what Carolyn was saying. Okay, that's pretty detailed. Now, why? Well, here is a diagram of what most people think it looks like. Does that look like something else you've seen? Menorah, right? If you were from Egypt and you had never seen a menorah, this may be the first time what we today call a menorah was created. Can you see? And again, it not only shows the representation, as we saw a minute ago, of angels, but now all sorts of representations of nature, flowers, blossoms, things of beauty. Today, we take for granted that when we see three on one side, three in the other, one in the middle, that's seven. And that's what? A menorah. But that is actually, in some respects, created in the mind of those who, until that time, I guess, most likely had never seen it. Why the specificity? So that you could eventually have what today we consider to be one of the most iconic symbols of Judaism. Okay, one more, just in the interest of time, because this one will be fun for some of you that are artists. Um, The description of the priestly garments, Exodus 28, on the hem, you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them. So when a priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year during what? Yom Kippur. okay, he was to take with him garments that represented nature and carrying on the presence of God. But if you read that carefully you see something really odd. First of all, in nature, pomegranates are what? Red. I meant to go to Kroger last night and get a pomegranate and hold it up just in case you hadn't seen one in a while. But are pomegranates ever blue? Not to my knowledge, right? You might say purple and scarlet could be natural colours of a change of pomegranate, but for sure blue is not. And so the implication of that, and other artists have made this, and Francis Schaefer goes into more detail than I want to, but if I got any artists here, it really, in a sense, gives you the freedom to actually design things that aren't, quote, photographic, in the narrow sense of that word. You know, you've had some people say, and I've gone into uh, various museums, Especially one uh, uh, art museum over at Fort Worth I went to a while back. I mean, you see some of these pictures, they're just like taking a picture. It's just amazing. But it gives you the freedom to actually have purple pomegranates. And I think that illustrates the fact that here you have the freedom to do all sorts of things Creatively. Uh, Whether it's, you know, even when I take pictures, sometimes people say, well, that's a great picture. Well, you know, I also go into Lightroom and change a few things, exposure or the saturation or something like that. And, of course, you can, with Photoshop, do all sorts of things that don't actually exist. So we know that. But I think in some respects, even looking at this, we can see some principles about art. I'm not going to turn this into an art lecture. But I think illustrates only so well what uh, was revealed just with the tabernacle itself. Okay, let's move fast forward to the temple. Now first of all, you might say, well, Solomon designed the temple, right? So it's all the work of Solomon. Well, first of all, everything we just had revealed in Exodus still applies, but now as we get to 1 Chronicles, we see something else. David records that Solomon's design was a pattern that he had by the what? Holy Spirit. I've learned not to say Holy Ghost today because then they think Casper, right? Did you learn that today? Okay. All right. But, you know, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit. So there we go. And verse 19 goes on to say, and this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord, all the work to be done according to the plan. So the illustration is, is that even as the temple now was built by Solomon, it also was designed ultimately by God. And the temple was to be filled with artwork and garnished with precious, precious stones for beauty. Think about that for just a minute. Is there any structural reason why to have precious stones? None that I can think of. But the precious stones were there for what? Beauty. And so that is, I think, another idea that sometimes we can, when we are in a house of worship, as even think of some of the artwork we have here, even at Prestonwood. You might say, well, there's no function to that large globe out there that sometimes we look at while we're eating some of the coffee cake or a variety of others or all this beautiful stained glass or even the beauty of this. It has no functional basis, ultimately, doesn't hold the building up, doesn't make it any stronger. But I think it illustrates again that although there was not a pragmatic reason for that, God says it is good for you to have things which are beautiful. And sometimes you look at some of the churches, he talks about this a bit, you know, especially uh, when this came out during the 1970s, there was sort of this uh, desire to have almost utilitarian-like churches. And we Protestants sometimes went too far. We looked at the Catholic churches and say they were so ornate and everything. Sometimes we had churches that looked like buildings, like office buildings, you know. And here it says, no, there's a place for beauty uh, within Well, a place of worship, there's a place for beauty inside your own home. Anyway, I just thought I'd add that one. But let's look at another one. It also tells us, interesting enough, that Solomon lined the house with gold, its beams, its thresholds, its walls, and its doors, and he carved cherubim into the walls. Well, again, is there any reason to do that? Structurally, not really. And yet you can go to some of the great cathedrals in Europe. And sometimes you have to go up on a scaffolding to see some of the things that are sculptured that only you could see on a scaffold. And there one time even asked one of the people, why are you sculpturing it up there? Nobody can see it. He said, well, God can see it. That was reason enough. And here in verses 16 and 17, this is even more interesting. He made chains like a necklace and put them on the tops of the pillars and made the hundred pomegranates. There's those pomegranates showing up again. God must like pomegranates. So there's something about that and put them on chains. But here's the interesting thing. He set up two pillars in the front of the temple, one on the south and one on the north, and then gives them the names. And again, think about this from an engineering point of view. Those two pillars do not hold up the temple. Those two pillars have no structural purpose other than just to be there as a testimony to what you can read later on in those passages in Second Chronicles chapter 3. So again, you can see just a tremendous amount of emphasis upon beauty and upon using this to maybe direct you to worship for the Lord. I think that's pretty powerful. If you look at your outline, you notice I also added just one very short section on the subject of Jesus and art. Because a lot of people say, well, you know, Jesus, he wasn't real big on the art. Oh, here's a good example. Let's first of all, to put it in context, go all the way back to the book Numbers 21. And as you remember, as the children of Israel are traveling around, they are bit by snakes. Some are dying. And so what is Moses commanded to do? He is commanded to make a serpent, a brass serpent, and put it on a standard. Now, those of you that watched The Chosen the first year, I think it was episode 4 or 5 we were thinking, um, it opens... As some of these uh, episodes of The Chosen open up, you're going, where are we going with this? Because you're saying, who is this guy? And you finally figure out it's Moses. And it shows Moses making the brass serpent, which then, of course, ties back to what we're going to talk about now in John 3. And that is that as Jesus is speaking to his disciples, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, which was used to save them from snake bites, so the Son of Man will be lifted up that whoever believes in him will have eternal life that phrase lifted up is a rough translation of a euphemism that we used in the first century crucifixion you know it was crucifixion was so heinous you usually didn't say he was crucified you say he was lifted up just even to the end of this day sometimes people say he didn't die he was, you know, passed on, you know. And so that idea is he was already giving them in this passage the fact that just as this <laughs> brass serpent was lifted up and saved the people physically, so the Son of Man is going to be lifted up on the cross and save you spiritually. And it's interesting that Jesus uses that particular piece of art because if you remember your history in the, in the story of King Hezekiah, we talked about him last week. Because people started to worship the brass serpent, he broke that and destroyed it. So here Jesus uses something that later was actually even used in an idolatrous way, still nevertheless as a piece of art to illustrate the importance of art. Oh, that's pretty strike, strong idea. But I'm going to keep the standard moving here. We've got a few people here that have a medical degree, and I noticed that when I put this up here, Rob shook his head. So I guess he's read the book. But you know, I've read this when I was a young Christian. Matter of fact, one of the reasons I'm at pro Ministries is when I was forced to take speech classes in my senior year. Because I remember telling my um, science advisor that he told me I had to take two speech courses, otherwise I couldn't graduate. I said, why would I need a speech course? I'm never going to be a speaker. Um, <laughs> but one of my speeches was based on this book, and you'll see why in just a minute. And uh, it is interesting because the title comes from this in Exodus 15, verse 26. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God. And do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases, or some of the King James translation, none of these diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. And so we see almost instantaneously the first thing, the concept of quarantine, again, we find in the Old Testament. That was the way to deal with leprosy. And a leper was to actually be outside the camp. And I give you that in Leviticus 13, verse 46. If you've looked at any of the history of the plagues in Europe, you know that there were times when a plague broke out. They would come back to the scriptures and say, just as the Jews were to put people outside of the camp and to quarantine them. Have we all been in quarantine this year? We can kind of relate to that, can't we? Um, So they wanted to use that as a way to prevent the spread of disease. And that was something that we see instituted in the book of Leviticus. Let's look at another one. In Numbers 19, there are just an incredible number of statements about washing hands. Have we been washing our hands a lot this year? Of course we have. And it brings me back to a very famous story, which we've talked about on the radio, of a young Hungarian doctor, Ignaz Semmelweis. And Dr. Semmelweis noticed that these doctors, would, they would do an autopsy and then they would work on a woman. And he would notice that many of these women were dying after these individuals had Actually engaged in some kind of autopsy or an investigated somebody that had some kind of disease. So he proposed that they would begin to wash their hands between examinations and wash their hands between surgeries. And you would think that that would be today one of those intuitively obvious things. It was not. They made fun of him. They ridiculed him. Uh, he was criticized. They said, this is just a waste of our time and effort. He even had wash basins put into the hospital, and eventually he was criticized so much that his contract was not renewed. If you follow the rest of the story, he was so hounded that he eventually died in a mental institution. Because of all of that. And yet, as soon as they threw out the wash basins and the mortality rate shot up, some people started to rethink whether or not that was the case. But this idea of washing your hands and being seen as unclean for a period of time, that's in the book of Numbers. And it was not something you could find really in any other aspect of ancient Middle Eastern uh, culture. But it was something, even to this day, and now some of it was ceremonial washing of the hands, but this idea of being unclean and washing hands, which we've been through this year, a lot of that goes all the way back uh, to um, the Old Testament. One last one that I would uh, take, this one is really kind of the most intriguing, is Dr. Hiram Weinberg, while studying New York Mount Sinai Hospital, noticed that very few Jewish women had cervical cancer, almost none. And he and the researchers began to think, well, maybe it's due to the fact that Jewish men were circumcised and so there was less opportunity for certain things that might have caused cervical cancer. So then, interestingly enough, uh, there was an article came out in the Journal of the American Medical Association listing the reasons why circumcision might be a healthy practice, but the article then was challenged for failing to mention the safest time in which to do that. Think about that for just a minute. And so in there, they pointed out, the article mentions that newborn infant um, usually does not necessarily have enough vitamin K, which is one of the cofactors for clotting. Um, for at least about the fifth day. There's a little bit that's left over when you're just born from the mother's, you know, uh, from the placenta. But really, between the second and the fifth days, there's not enough vitamin K uh, that would help them to actually clot until about the fifth to the seventh day. And then, I was going to put the chart up here, but I do not want to get too scientific. If you look at the amount of available prothrombin, there's a little bit of that, in again, because of birth. But then it drops, and then it increases... To actually not just 100%, but 110% on the 8th day, and then drops down to 100%. Meaning that really the absolutely best day, if you wanted to make sure that clotting would take place, would be on the 8th day. You go to Genesis 17, and you see God tells Abram to actually uh, perform circumcisions on what? Who is 8 days old among you shall be circumcised. Now, he didn't come to that after hundreds of years of investigation, checking out, uh, doing a scientific evaluation, doing a control group. I mean, this was divinely revealed. And I think most scientists recognize that apart from what we, of course, now in hospitals, we have clotting factors and things like that. But if you're circumcising people out there in the desert, when's the best day? It's The eighth day. That's what Genesis said. Pretty intriguing. Uh, but with that, let me just real quickly before we run out of time talk about one other aspect. Because God gives very specific statements about the tabernacle, about the temple, even about health laws. We can also talk about the dietary laws and whether or not uh, we should uh, eat pork and a variety of other things. But I want to get into some of the legal issues as well. And that is that when we look at the Ten Commandments and we look at all the Old Testament law code, again, very, very specific. And one of those is the idea of the rule of law. The Jews wanted a king. Now, you can see that Samuel eventually condemns them for wanting a king, but nevertheless, they made Saul the first king in Israel. But even though he was king, and later David was a king, they still had to obey the Ten Commandments. We take that for granted, right? You know, i know, heaven forbid that people that are elected live under a different set of laws than the rest of us. We'd never want that to happen, right? I mean, that couldn't possibly happen. You've got to understand that even in Western culture, we have this idea of the divine right of kings. Can you think of Esther, fearful that when she goes before the king, she could be killed? Can you think of Herod, deciding that just on a whim, can kill John the Baptist? I mean, and yet, look at this. Samuel rebukes King Saul for disobedience in 1 Samuel 13. Nathan rebukes King David, 2 Samuel 12, because of the sin with Bathsheba, because the Old Testament law was considered this. It was a nation of what? Laws, not a nation of kings, even in that situation. And so it's kind of interesting, even during the Jewish monarchy, you have, for example, all sorts of prophets that could criticize as well. Another concept that you find very early on in the book of Exodus is majority rule. Again, that is something we take for granted today, uh, part of Western law, part of Western culture, but civil cases were decided on the basis of a simple majority. If the group had to decide, it would be simple majority. Capital crimes had to be decided in terms of what would be considered a supermajority and The implication, especially if you look in Jewish law, is that generally we follow the majority except, and then they point to Exodus 23, do not follow the majority when they do wrong or when they give evidence that perverts justice. Now, sometimes we look at that and say, well, that doesn't exactly look like the trial of Jesus. But I think a couple of weeks ago I pointed out all the different errors, all the times in which the trial of Jesus violated Jewish law. But overall, you were pretty safe in the Jewish law code because a majority had to vote against you and a supermajority had to certainly vote against you if it was a capital crime. Freedom of speech. I've already sort of alluded to that. The Hebrew prophets openly spoke out against their kings. They spoke out against the people. And um, yes, some of them were persecuted. But I think, again, there was this idea of freedom of speech that, again, we take for granted. But again, the majority decided policy. And even there, the minority had a right to be heard. And so some really interesting things that people have been talking about in terms of the history of even the Jewish law. And if you'd like to read more about that, I would commend to you William Blackstone's commentary on the English law, because time and time again, he refers back to some of the principles in the Jewish law that they implemented in English common law, which then were carried over into American law. Uh, many times, if you wanted to be a lawyer, you just had to read Blackstone's commentaries. Abraham Lincoln is a good example. He didn't go to law school. He read for the law, and that's what they would read. Anyway, one more real quickly. The trial. Yeah, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago in terms of Jesus. The highest court, of course, is the great Sanhedrin. But then you had some lesser courts that existed that heard death penalty cases. And then even the lowest court that handled some of the civil and criminal matters. And you can see that if you look at both the Torah, uh, for example, I didn't give you all the verses there, or the Talmud, which was some of the writings of the Jewish scholars, these describe what today we would call due process. And just a couple weeks ago, when I talked about the trial of Jesus, they violated all sorts of basic Jewish principles of due process. It was a kangaroo trial for sure uh, that uh, caused Jesus to be executed. And interestingly enough, to make sure that you would not bear false witness in a court, if you did bear false witness, you would same the same penalty as the accused. So that was a way to make sure that you were providing honest, uh, impeccable terra, uh, testimony in front of a court. So, if nothing else, we can see that that was certainly the case in the trials. Finally, what about punishment? Well, if you go to Exodus 21, it has this idea of what we call the lex talionis. Lex talionis was what? It's a life for life, burn for burn, wound for wound. It still seems pretty crass, but the idea was is that you can't have a punishment that far the exter- is much more extreme. In other words, punishment should correspond both in degree and in the kind of offense. That's very different than the kind of punishment that existed in a Babylonian court and an Egyptian court. Of course, again, if you were to offend the pharaoh, you were to offend the king. Yeah, that was it. That was even if you just said something, that would be enough to get yourself executed right on the spot. And here, the Old Testament actually had the concept of lex talionis. If you go back to Exodus 21, it actually talks about if two men are fighting and a you hit a pregnant woman, she gives birth, but there is no damage to the child, then you have to still pay a penalty. So it looks like even there, they're usually talking about the monetary compensation for this, not if you get a wound that then I'm going to wound you as well, which is very different than what you have in Islam, right? Because in Islam, the principle is taken in a very literal sense. If you're a thief, you could lose your hand for punishment, right? So you can see it's very different. But of course, the biggest question is, what about the ultimate punishment, the death penalty? That goes all the way back to Genesis 9, 6 instituted after Noah gets off the ark and that is whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image the concept there of the death penalty anyway I may have gone into it more detail but you can see how specific everything in the Old Testament was because I think God was trying to protect the nation of Israel and trying to protect the Jews first of all from borrowing false ideas about religion from other cultures and to protect them from borrowing false scientific scientific uh, you look at some of the treatments being used for everything from blindness to leprosy back in that uh, world and you can see all of them were fakery and uh, very bad science and so if nothing else trying to establish the nation on a foundation which we really today take for granted but shouldn't because if nothing else, we see that God has really protected us from those diseases if we apply some of those principles and given us a basis for actually believing that our legal system, if based on God's word, can be one that can protect the rights of other individuals. So Carolyn, thank you for the question, and I'll take one more next week.